This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm very pleased to have uh, the honor of moderating a panel today. We are also going to have um, the author of a book called Tomorrow is, the long, uh, is a Long Time um, join us and show us photographs from this book. Um, and um, it's, it's a great pleasure to take part in this because the book is loosely based on several of our projects in Tijuana and the people and the stories, many of whom are actually here today as VIPs. I've come to know John very well over the last couple of years, um, in, first in his role with Science Magazine, where he is the senior correspondent. And he has been following the HIV epidemic since the earliest of days. And he is, without doubt, the most um, eminent journalist that covers HIV um, in the world and is well known for his special issues in Science Magazine that um, focus on um, different regions of the world that are sponsoring the International AIDS Conference. And it was with um, that um, opportunity when the International AIDS Conference came back to the United States um, in 2012 um, he um, came to me and said that he would like to visit Tijuana to see um, what our HIV programs were doing. And um, I uh, was happy to take him there. He, he lives in Cardiff, so he had been to Tijuana very many times. But we, we took him to um, the River Canal, the Tijuana River Canal, where many hundreds of, of injection drug users are, are living, many of whom were participating in our study. And he came back to me at the end of that day and said, you know, I'm going to write you into this feature in Science Magazine, but I'm going to come back to you in a while because I want to write a book on this. I've been very moved by my experience. I did this project with photographer Malcolm Linton, and it's a complete collaboration. He's now living in Bogota, Colombia, so he can't be here. Malcolm and I have covered the HIV-AIDS epidemic in about 30 countries around the world, and we typically work uh, in a place for a week or a few weeks, and then we do a magazine feature, and we both got tired of it. We wanted to stay somewhere, to park and see what happened over time to people. And so we chose Tijuana because... It was close to my home. I could go there regularly. It's easy for me to go from here to there for the day. And Malcolm moved to downtown Tijuana. And Malcolm also is a registered nurse who worked with Stephanie's project for a while as a nurse. This is the um, river canal that separates Tijuana from San Diego. We began this project because so many advances have occurred in HIV-AIDS research that it's now come to the point that people are talking about ending the epidemic in specific locales. If you're HIV infected and you take antiretroviral drugs, your virus will go down to such low levels that it's highly unlikely you'll transmit it to anyone else. You can also take antiretroviral drugs the same way you can take malarial drugs to prevent yourself from becoming infected. In the River Canal, when we started the project, about 1,000 people were living there. Many, if not most of them, are deported from the United States. At the sluice there on the left side, people sell heroin. The people are lined up uh, either to buy or to shoot heroin. And people are living in the canal as well. This woman, Reina Ortiz, grew up in the United States near Los Angeles. She was a clinical nurse associate um, before she was deported. She has five children. Um, Reina uh, had been using heroin since she was very young. Um, Reina lived with 
um, her boyfriend in, these are called yungos, these little shelters that they made. Reina ended up going into rehab. The rehab programs in Tijuana exist. Uh, many of them are run, run by church groups, by well-meaning people, but the relapse rate is incredibly high. They don't have the sort of uh, tools that our rehab programs have. Opiate substitution is a cornerstone of rehab, rehabilitation for people who are addicted to opiates. It's not common at all in Tijuana. Um, this man, Salome, lived in a manhole. He, um, you can see his syringe in the foreground. He uh, lived there with four other people. He said he estimated that he shared syringes every day. This is Susie Leal, who is here today in the yellow vest. Um, this is along the wall that I showed you before. You can see there are syringes scattered around the ground. People often wear syringes behind their ears like pencils. Susie's an outreach worker with um, the project that Stephanie uh, uh, started. Um, and Susie uh, was a user for many years, lived in the canal for many years. Susie is also openly HIV infected. She has been undetectable now for Susie, uh, for I think, Susie, for undetectable for 10 años. Yeah, for 10. For 14, on, 14 years, she's been undetectable on antiretrovirals. Um, everyone in the canal trusts her. And when you're running a project like their project, you have to have people who are part of the community working with you, or you can't accomplish anything. A lot of what we are trying to do in the book is show you the human side of people who are called marginalized in scientific words, but in plain English, they are hated. They're hated for a lot of reasons. They're hated because they have drug addiction or other substance abuse problems. They're hated because many of them have been criminals and were arrested or are arrested routinely. They're hated because they're deportees. They're not even considered belonging to the country that they've been forced to live in. There was a needle and syringe exchange program that was operating six days a week, distributing um, thousands of needles and syringes. Um, Mexico was receiving funding from the Global Fund. Um, it's the Global Fund to um, fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. Mexico's income status rose too high, and Tijuana and Mexico lost its ability to receive Global Fund money. The government did not follow up with its own funding, which is what was supposed to happen. The Global Fund was basically just seed money to get stuff started. This group cut down to delivering uh, needles and syringes one day a week, and from thousands, they were giving out 750 in one day. What do you think is going to happen when you do that? And I think that Stephanie's program is beginning to see the results of that. More people are going to become infected because more people are going to share. China also grew up in Los Angeles. She was deported um, after stealing catalytic converters from cars. Um, she was a gang member in L.A. And she sold sex at night. She lived in a nyungo and became extremely ill, and you can see the horrible infection in her cheek. The level of health care that people can access who live in the canal was minimal. So Patty Gonzalez-Zuniga, who is here, who is wearing the hat in the photo, took the staff uh, and created a mobile clinic in the canal. It was an extremely compassionate and brave effort from this team, and uh, on those pillars, there are feces at the base of the pillars. Those are the toilets in the canal. So that's where she's parking the van. 
And Patty, as with most everyone else working with this UCSD team, developed a deep level of trust with people. And they also did HIV testing for them and then would try to refer them to help. The problem in Tijuana is that the response to HIV AIDS is fractured. You cannot end your AIDS epidemic with a fractured response. Las Memorias is an AIDS hospice, and uh, Antonio Granillo is here, and Sergio, who run this. Um, there should not be an HIV AIDS hospice in 2016. We should be at a point in time where AIDS hospices have all shut their doors. But there is one there, and they provide compassionate care for people who cannot access medicine or have to wait to access medicine. Um, this is another family that lived at Las Memorias. Araceli and her husband Sergio and her son who were calling by a different name to protect his identity in the long run, they all gave permission for this. Um, the father, mother, and son are all HIV infected. Araceli, the mother, died from AIDS. Sergio ended up in prison. That's him in the middle bunk on the upper left. One of the other angels of Tijuana is Juanita, who's here, who runs Uneme, an orphanage. And, and that's the, um, the boy living his life uh, with, uh, at the orphanage. And he's doing well. He was doing well the last I saw. Thank you for having me today and letting me tell this story. I'd like to introduce a very special person to me, Dr. Patty Gonzalez Zuniga. Um, Joan actually introduced her along the way, so um, you've met her um, in, in one way already. But more formally, um, Patty, as I call her, um, has a medical degree from the Universidad Autónoma de Baja California, which is the extent of my Spanish. I'm getting that. <laughs> she also has, uh, has done an MPH degree. And uh, she came to work for me several years ago for Proyecto, Proyecto El Cuete. Uh, Cuete is uh, slang for syringe. It has double meanings. It, it also means rocket in Spanish. And um, it's uh, a, a way that we can communicate that our study is about injection drug use when we're trying to recruit people into a study um, who are engaging in, in an illegal behavior. Um, and Patty is a very special person. Um, her heart is as big as this room. Um, not only is she um, the director of our research project, but she runs a wound clinic in her spare time. And the proceeds from the very small amount of money that we asked you to um, contribute to um, you know, having your seat here today are going to support the wound clinic because what we have found um, in doing our work in the canal with injection drug users is that they have these massive abscesses, many uh, because they're injecting drugs with um, dirty needles, um, but also because they're living in very unhygiene conditions. So, um, Patty, I'll allow you a chance to get a word in edgewise here, but I'm sure that some of the people in the audience are, are wondering, what does HIV and drug use and what does the criminal of drug use have to do with um, the risks that our people are, are, are experiencing. I really believe that coming together to help the people that don't, that some of us don't call them human, uh, it's time to do that. It's 30 years after, I mean, the boom of the epidemic. And I was reading a few books before, before getting ready to this uh, getting into like 
drugs, not getting me into drugs, but getting into the books with drugs, but, uh, and also poverty, and I think that's together. Um, the people that I know uh, in the canal and been working in, the, in El Cuete, I came from a different background. I used to call with kids and mothers, and that's an easy population to help because uh, you, all, you also feel, you know, that this poor kid needs to, help, needs to have help. And this mother is, is going to be, is pregnant, is being, going to give birth to, uh, to the new life. But when you see like an adult, like there is felty, that a lot of the people will not even turn into their eyes, that's more difficult. And it's more difficult to make people to feel that they're human beings. And I think uh, HIV in their name is human immunodeficiency virus, but it's the disease that we don't think that is for is human. It's the most unhuman treat disease in the world. I mean, you don't have the stigma for syphilis or for gonorrhea or for chlamydia or even for any of, but for HIV, I mean, we don't want to talk to H about HIV. So these people is not only they're HIV, but they're poor, but they use drugs. But uh, and to be honest with you, I find I found the love and the caring and the compassion for the people that are from these communities than from other communities, honestly. And I have. Like over and over, talk to my husband who's here, Gilberto, and I thank for being patient with me always because I talk and talk and talk about this. And, um, and I said, you know, I found the genuine love in these people. I feel more safe, and I wanted to say this because I, I, I need to honor them. I need to be more compassionate and safe with them that we know other people. They give you whatever they have. They protect you. When we're on the streets, when we're on dangerous, close to shooting galleries, even inside, because sometimes I'm not supposed to go inside, but they know me, so we know, and thanks to Susie. Uh, but we go, and they take care of us. They never harm us. I'm more afraid from the police than to the people that are used rocks. Could you say more about that, Patty? You know, what, what does the police, how, how, does, how does policing practices exacerbate HIV infection? Yes, and you're getting into my passion. <laughs> well, uh, my office is uh, in the main corner of the uh, Zona Roja, which is the light, uh, well, the red light district. It's not red anymore, so I, I don't call it red light, but... Okay, and I, through my window, when I'm in the, my office, I hear sometimes Kenya, who's my field coordinator, Susie, Socorro, and Armando, everybody are here. Um, they say, Dr. Patty, the police is getting your participant again. And I said, oh, how, come on, how? And so, like, during the day, the police is in front of our office, waiting sometimes for people to come up from the interview to get them, to put them in the police car and take them. But wait a second, Patty. Hasn't Mexico <laughs> decriminalized drug possession for personal use? 
Why are, why are they being arrested? I don't get it. <laughs> well, there's many, many, many things that, uh, that make that to happen. Uh, you know, the people that are coming or they're going, walking, they look, you know, filthy. They, they have, like, they're homeless, the majority of them. They're walking, and the city of Tijuana wanted to look really nice. So now, I mean, the, 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 uh, the city is trying to make uh, for Tijuana to be like the finest city that is San Diego also, like, like looks very nice. So homeless people in downtown Tijuana, they don't look good, right? Doesn't, they, they don't look good. So if they saw, sometimes they carry like a syringe in their pocket because there are no syringes available. I mean, there are very few. So they, they, like, if you remember having, like, uh, something that you precious a lot, like, you know, like a color or a heart or something that you, well, that's a syringe for them. They precious dama, that syringe, that they have it, they hide it. They walk, the police will, you know, go look for the syringe and take it and put them in the police car. And but isn't it legal to actually purchase and carry syringes without a prescription in Mexico? Yes, it's legal. And you have diabetes, you can go and buy syringes. So why are the police arresting people for carrying syringes when it's totally legal? Because they don't know the law. Thank you. So th- here is the rub. We have a country where HIV medications are supposed to be free under a universal healthcare system. And we've heard from John about a fractured system that doesn't get the drugs to the people or the right kind of drugs, the antiretroviral drugs. We have a country where syringes are legally purchased without a prescription and can be carried. And since 2010, we've had a drug policy reform in Mexico federally called the Narcomenudio. It took me about five years to learn how to pronounce that properly. Thank you to <laughs> Jaime Arredondo, who also has trained me on how to, how to speak a little Spanish, un poquito. Um, so we have these, these real oxymorons, if you will. And um, what is a problem is that the police don't know the laws, and um, the police are still engaging in behaviors that are driving people into these picaderos or these shooting galleries, as Patty has referred to and as John has shown us. And so these behaviors um, where you hide to inject drugs or you're trying to avoid the police, you're injecting really hurriedly, you don't want to go to the syringe exchange even if it's open because you know, the police might get you, and then they throw you in the pinta for 36 hours, and that's the worst place for a drug user because there you will undergo the malia, which is the, the drug withdrawal, and, and that's more horrible than anything. So these policing behaviors um, have really driven the HIV epidemic that we're seeing among injection drug users in Tijuana, and it's growing. Unfortunately, over the last month, Patty's team um, has identified seven new people who were HIV negative at the beginning of our study who are now HIV positive. And I fear that this is um, the epidemic that we unfortunately predicted on the basis of this recipe for an epidemic to happen. So I'm happy um, to uh, welcome our last panelist, um, Sir Richard Branson, to the, the, the panel. Um, he is a larger-than-life figure. Um, in the world, he's known as an entrepreneur for his work with the Virgin Group um, and um, was knighted in 1999. Um, but 
for me and for many of the people that are here, we know him more as a humanitarian. Um, he has um, founded Virgin Unite, which has done a tremendous work in the world in terms of philanthropy. And I'm really delighted that he was one of the founding members of the World um, the Commission on uh, Drug Policy, um, which um, has been very critical of the latest UN General Assembly special session on drug use that was uh, meant to um, reform drug policy and has led to um, a point in, in our time where there is, is no movement forward. So we've had the, the opportunity in the audience to hear the fact that we have HIV and other problems emerging as, as collateral damage to the war on drugs. And we're experiencing the blowback here in San Diego um, because we're only 20 minutes away from Tijuana. Um, so we invite you to make a couple of comments and observations and, and to give us advice because we are, many of us, um, academics who are spending our time trying to um, solve a very difficult problem. Well, first of all, sorry I'm late. Um, I don't know what I was smoking, but I went to the wrong university. Um, they, um, but anyway, I'm, gl I'm, I'm gl finally glad to have made it. Um, yes, yeah, so, um, so I'm, I've been an entrepreneur most of my life. I've, I've been um, uh, for, an entrepreneur for 50 years. I started off when I was 15. Um, and Having examined the war on drugs um, uh, with the Global Drug Commission in tremendous depth, I mean, every aspect of the war on drugs, um, I'm surprised that it wasn't closed down 49 years ago. Um, uh, I mean, if, it was, if I'd had a business that had failed so miserably, we would have, we would have closed it down uh, within a year of starting it. Um, but governments around the world seem to continue to... Um, uh, to continue to ignore facts and continue to create untold misery. Um, and um, so the Global Drug Commission is doing everything it can to try to get messages across to governments, to lobby governments, to um, use our influence, to try to get them to um, uh, treat drugs as a health problem um, when people have a problem and not a criminal problem. Um, and... Um, uh, and I think, you know, that we, we, I mean, what, what, what the Global Drug Commission is also saying to countries and to states is experiment with different approaches. I mean, you've, you've had a failed approach. Um, to, you know, try different approaches. And uh, the Global Drug Commission welcome the fact that in America you've got some states doing medical marijuana centers, some states legalizing. Um, because now, two or three years later, we can look at the effect of this and see whether... It's, it's created any misery, any extra misery, or has it, has it actually alleviated misery? And again, the Global Commission have looked at that and they believe that it has alleviated misery um, and uh, there have been a lot of benefits to society as a result of those moves. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, the, you know, so those are the, the, the main things. And, and um, we, 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 um, uh, you know, we've also obviously examined... Countries. I mean, my, my son made the film Breaking the Taboo, and you saw a, a short version of it today. Um, uh, I think, you know, the example of Portugal or um, Switzerland um, uh, should be adopted by America. Um, you know, Switzerland, well, Portugal, as, as mentioned, had that massive heroin problem. Um, and a 
president of Portugal in the year 2000 just said, right, no one's going to prison ever again. Nobody's going to be prosecuted ever again for taking drugs. If you've got a drug problem, come forward. And then the social workers helped wean those people off heroin. And most of those people are now useful members of society again. Um, and because those people came forward, they were given clean needles. Um, they were given the methadone by the state, so they didn't have to break and enter to get it themselves. Um, and they didn't contract hepatitis C, or they didn't contract HIV. Um, and, uh, and society has benefited enormously from, from this. So, um, so the Commission are not you know, um, advocating that you know, drugs are, you know, people should, well, everyone should go out and use drugs in the same way, you know, you don't advocate that everybody should go out and uh, drink lots of alcohol or, or smoke lots of cigarettes, but we're basically just saying, uh, you know, the, it, 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 you know, treat, you know, if I have a brother or sister who's got a problem or if I have a child who's got a problem, I want them to be treated humanely. I want them to be helped and I, I don't want them to be criminalized. Absolutely. Thank you very much for that comment. And I think also what you're saying, too, is that we, when we think about reforming drug policies, that it needs to be evidence-based. Um, my, my first um, several years were spent in Vancouver, Canada, where I set up a study very much like Proyecto El Cuete in Tijuana. And that allowed the safe injection facility to be evaluated and to show that, that a harm reduction approach is one that actually saves lives. And that is one step towards, um, you know, a softer and gentler approach to this problem. As a, as a bit of light, light relief, I was in an injection facility in Sydney last week, um, and, uh, and this girl had just injected herself with heroin. She hadn't seen that I was there. And then she turned around and saw me, and she went, God, I must have dropped acid. <laughs> 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 that's funny. That's great. Well, that's, that's, that's a, an opportune moment because I know that uh, many people are here to see you this afternoon and we're delighted to have you here at UC San Diego. And so um, I know that there's several of you that have questions in the audience and um, I know that one of my star PhD students, Jaime Arredondo, is just dying to ask his question. So um, Jaime, take it away. I wanted to ask you, you know, it seems like marijuana legalization is like the low-hanging fruit from drug reform. But Mexico is experiencing right now a deadly war against opium production, particularly in places such as the state of Guerrero that experienced that horrible massacre of the students. So how can we strike a balance between improving the human development of poor farmers in these opium areas in places such as Mexico, and at the same time minimizing the negative consequences of the heroin epidemic that is happening here in the United States? Um, I mean, I think I've sort of answered the question as I, you know, I mean, like if, 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 if people have heroin problems, I think the state should buy the um, methadone or the heroin from, from the farmers, um, and, um, and the state should supply those people who've got... Um, uh, heroin issues and, until they're, they're, they're ready to go into a clinic and wean themselves off. Um, and, uh, and in that way, you get rid of uh, all, all the underground traders of, of, of drugs um, and the state, the state takes control. Um, and, um, and I think you know, the Commission feel that it, it, it shouldn't just apply to marijuana, that all drugs should be decriminalised. So, um, and 
uh, and actually when you really examine it, and I, I know this will sound controversial, that all drugs should be regulated. I mean, you, you don't make it easy to get cigarettes anymore. You, you don't make it easy... Uh, well, actually, alcohol, it, it is easy now, but, uh, you know, but, um, you know, but you won't... You, you know, if you, if you uh, regulate... Um, heroin, you're going to make it tough for people to go and get the heroin, but they're going to have to go and they're going to have to see a social worker and they're going to have to go through some rigmarole to get it. Uh, but I think, you know, for, for, for the state can, the, the, by the state taking control of all these things, they can, I mean, like, say, ecstasy tablets. This, you know, the, 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 the people die from ecstasy tablets when they're mixed with embalming fluid and other horrible things. Um, and um, again, you know, you've got to, you know, um, uh, you know, but if, you, if the state can take control of all these things, they, they can be monitored um, just like um, a lot of other very dangerous drugs which people can buy in chemist shops every day. So, but what do you think of um, the, the point that Jaime is, is trying to get at with? What do you tell the farmer? I mean, Al Chapo came out publicly in Sean Penn's infamous interview and said, I'm a farmer. I'm a poor farmer. If, if I had opportunities when I was growing up, I wouldn't have had to get into you know, drug trafficking. And so when you look at a farmer in Guerrero and he can grow opium and make a lot more than if growing wheat or something like that, I mean, the same problems exist in Afghanistan. And as an entrepreneur, do you have any ideas on how we can um, you know, change the dynamic to make it possible? Um, or do you think that, that by decriminalizing and regulating drugs that, that it will change that dynamic right from the ground as a structural intervention? Uh, I, I, I'm not an expert in this area, um, and so I'm just going from my instinct, and uh, I need another drug commissioner who knows more about it. But, um, but um, uh, I, think, I, I do think if things are deregulated and controlled properly, a, a lot of these problems will go away. And I mean, the only reason these farmers exist is because of the, the underworld in America and the, the thirst for these drugs um, is, is there. If you can actually get, get, get rid of the underworld and, um, and if you can... I mean, you know, so many people are on drugs, particularly who've got drug problems. They don't like having drug problems. They don't like being on drugs. They want to get off. They want to become normal members of society again. Um, and... Um, and I think you know that's you know that's a more like a better a better approach. Absolutely. Um, no, I, and, and then obviously one can try to you know try to guide these farmers into sell, you know making money from selling other other um, other products as well. I think so. Um, we have a question from Ashley. My name is Ashley. I'm the undergraduate um, global health representative for UCSD, and I also work for Steph, Dr. Strathy, um, at the Global <laughs> Health Institute. Um, my question was, um, it's a simple question, just how do we break the status quo of drug abuse? It just showed that the latest UN gas um, meeting conference was just a missed opportunity for, for change. And they, you know, they failed to address the scientific um, evidence of drug abuse around the world and continued the criminalization of drug users. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The body that, uh, the UNODC, the body that actually prosecutes people all over the world for taking drugs, um, about two months ago, um, they uh, contacted the BBC and they contacted um, the New York Times, a number of newspapers, and they said, we, we believe that we've been wrong for the last 60 years. We, 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 we're we're going to publish a paper on Monday 
um, which is going to say, no, you know, we, we should get rid of our organization. Uh, and, um, and, and, they, and, and, and I read this document on the, on the Saturday, and it was exactly what the Drug Commission had been saying. Um, it was the most enlightening document I've ever read. Um, and, and it just looked, you know, thank God, finally, this war is over. Um, the, somebody, <laughs> uh, the, head, the, the head of the UNODC happens to be Russian, and uh, Russia are some of the worst, you know, the worst behaved country as far as treating um, people who've got drug problems. Anyway, by the Monday, they, would, they had withdrawn the paper, um, and, it, and, it, and it, never, it never got published. Um, I mean, I put it up on my blog and made sure it got out. But, and it did. But it's an important, important paper. But the fact that the vast majority of people in that organization know this to be you know, the, the case, um, and, um, and the fact that they, um, you know, they, they, they effectively put it, put it out um, is, is, I think, a, posit- a positive sign for the future. In the meantime, I think the countries. Um, and states will actually uh, largely ignore the, the UN on this one and they'll just experiment with their own approaches. Um, and, and, and as a commission, we will encourage them, continue to encourage them to experiment with their own approaches um, and, um, and, and just point to the countries that are, uh, that are managing to get on top of the problem and not the countries that are criminalising their citizens. Well, any, any thoughts yourself? Since you've... Um. I just, I just recently realized that drug policy is something I'm really into, but um, I have been following it, and I definitely think that it should be by case-by-case basis that really contextualizing it is um, how to make sure an intervention like best works. So I definitely would agree with that. Well, definitely read the, the Global Commission on Drug Policies report because it's really groundbreaking. Hello, I'm Anne McEnany from the International Community Foundation, and I have a two-part question. One is for Sir Richard. Public health is always a government issue, and I'm just wondering if there's any conversation globally about other types of private sector interventions beyond decriminalization and just the assumption that commerce will follow. And then the other part of my question is for the people who are more familiar with the situation in Tijuana. Which levels of government are the most receptive your work, what we've seen with climate change is that the municipal level has been the most effective intervention point, and I'm curious if there are ways to work with other levels of government than just the federal level. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I'm a great believer in a public health system, and it's, it's um, I mean, sorry, I don't want to be political right now, but I mean, it's wonderful. I think that America is finally move, moving towards a universal healthcare system, um, which um, uh, Britain has had since 1946, and, um, and it's meant that every, everybody's treated equally in Britain, Canada the same. And I know that um, America's not perfect yet, but, um, but you know, people... <laughs> well, you know, but it's a step in the right direction, and it's up to, uh, hopefully, people to, um, you know, to stick with this and make it, and, and, and make it work. Um, and... You know, and in Britain, uh, uh, you know, if if somebody has a has a um, a drug problem, there are national health clinics for people to go to to get help. Um, there are also private clinics um, for people who want to get help if they can afford it. Um, but at least there there are the national health clinics that if somebody's got a heroin problem, they can go and they can 
um, spend three months, um, and um, and and, it, they're, and they're not going to be their family's not going to be bankrupted as a result. So I think in America there are a number of private clinics. There aren't, I think, as, as, as enough um, uh, an, an, enough free clinics for people to go to get help. I don't think, and I think there should be. Do you want to give us your thoughts on it? On that, it's hard to know whether the issue for the private sector intervention is on the on the backside, the medical, the pharmaceuticals, and the drug intervention, or on the clinic side, or if it's on the front end of pushing the government to see a commercial potential for decriminalization, as we've seen in some of the states here. And hopefully, we'll, so hopefully somebody's studying that and we'll get more evidence. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, ta- the taxes from marijuana are going to be gigantic in the years to come. And, you know, they, they, are, pla- they are now in some states paying for the uh, alcohol clinics, the, the drug rehabilitation clinics. Um, and, and, and there's a, a plenty of money left over to build schools and universities. So, and, and it's just beginning. So I think that, that will... That, that will um, you know, that will increase. And for the second part of your question, I think I'd like to ask Patty, who I know has an opinion about this. Um, now, gee, Patty, the municipal, the state, or the, or the federal government, when it comes to drug use, who do you think ha- is, our, is the best friend? None. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. But uh, the problem is, like, the government is not a structure. So you need to find... You know, people that know the fact, people that are sensible to, like, this problem and understand it. Because, like, if you go to, like, a certain level of the federal level, they will want it to do what they're good for, you know, for the majority of the government-affiliated institutions. If you go to the state, if it's a different government, they will go against that. So... I think you need to find people. First, we have corruption. That's number one. Second, we need to find an alternative to, to, uh, to make a change and then demonstrate that making a, a change, having a clinic or having something that is providing effective, like uh, I, I will say like an integrated service and be a model of this will turn you know, the government without convincing them, without waiting for policies sometimes to change that will take, like, longer time. So that's why, I mean, with, uh, with Dr. Stretti, with staff, staff and uh, the, the team in El Cuete and my volunteers that are from all over, all the community in Tijuana, we say this is enough. I mean, it's 30 years and it's every time the same thing. Uh, when the Global Fund ends, uh, I mean, when the global fund began, everybody was so worried about don't, uh, taking syringes to people. Everybody was like wa- wanted to be working with IV drugs users to, I mean, to educate them, to do prevention, to, I mean, interest. When the global fund end, very few stay, and the very few that stay are the people that are here today. I think from Tijuana, because even with no resources. We try to manage to really uh, see the person, the human being that needs the care. And I don't think that you don't need millions and millions of money to get that. 
I mean, we've started the wound clinic with a little table, my stethoscope, and asking people what do they need. They line up, and here is Socorro, who is the nurse uh, in El Cuete and also was the volunteer of the clinic, and many of the uh, Susie, who's our worker, and Kenya, who's the field coordinator, and Roman, who is very shy about talking about himself, but he has a master's in public health, and also he's a teacher at the uh, university. A lot of people are coming together, like uh, doctors from, that are on the Global Health Department that are coming on their free time to the clinic. But they're really doing jobs that, that should be state and federally exactly, sponsored. Exactly. And that, that's the issue that, that we're facing. So here we have federal law in Mexico that has decriminalized drugs for personal possession, small amounts that were arbitrarily chosen, unlike Portugal. But in Tijuana, over this last year and a half, even though we have a mayor who has a medical degree, he uh, sanctioned and supported a operativo in the Tijuana River Canal that ousted over a thousand people and forced them into drug treatment. Now, these drug treatment programs, as uh, Claudia Raful will know, who's a Mexican PhD student who's been studying this, are not really drug treatment programs. They're, they're very inhumane centers where people are being subjected to human rights violations. And so you have these incredible oxymorons that are just um, really ripping people apart and making people afraid of actually going to real drug treatment. There's only three methadone programs in the whole city of, of Tijuana. And they charge. I mean, they're charged like uh, close to $5 for each Which dose. is a lot of money for and people. 20 pesos, which is like close to $2 for tra- uh, transport. And they close, I mean, they open during like from 8 to 2 or 3 o'clock. So people that doesn't make it to that time, I mean, they lose the methadone and those. And then they go on the streets and shoot with heroin. So then you have like overdoses. You have people dying from unnecessary deaths. Steph, I'd like to add one thing to that. If we look at the United States and Europe and Australia where success has happened, it's largely come not from governments at the beginning, but from communities. And whether they were gay men or people who were using drugs, they were the ones who drove change. In Tijuana, you have a big problem because many of the gay men who are most affected by HIV come to San Diego because they're upper middle class. Uh, They don't go there for treatment even. They're not pissed off enough as gay men were in this country. They were furious about the way their government was behaving. But in gay men in Tijuana, and Juanita taught me this, there's a sense of complacency because they're not seeing their friends dying because their friends are getting good care in the U.S. With drug users, many of them are deported. They have no political agency whatsoever. And they can't protest anything without getting thrown in jail for opening their mouths. And drug users in the United States and former drug users and in Australia and in Canada, for that matter, Uh, and in Europe, in Scotland, they've done remarkable work, and in the UK as well, have loud voices, and they don't worry about being thrown in jail for opening their mouths. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Or being killed. Yeah, or being killed, for that matter. And Patty alluded to this, but the corruption at the local level is almost mobbed up in terms of who's running the healthcare response. So it hasn't changed. She can't say this without fear for her own life. I can it, it, it's so corrupt, it's so wrong, you can't turn to local health officials to solve the problem because they won't. So this is our fear when it comes to drug policy reform because 
The laws on the books don't necessarily impact the laws on the streets. The police are actually doing the same things that they did before, but now that there's a threshold, they could say, hey, well, you know, uh, that looks like it's under the limit if you give me 20 bucks, you know. So uh, we actually have a police education program that I was telling people about earlier that is bundling occupational safety with uh, harm reduction and HIV prevention and teaching the police that if they break the syringes from t- take them away from the drug users that they put themselves at risk of getting HIV and hepatitis through needle sticks. And as a result of that, they're concerned about their health and they are changing their behaviors. And this is a, a, a program that's actually showing positive results my colleague Leo Beletsky um, is the one who's the brainchild of putting these together, but it's the first program of its kind that we're evaluating, and it can go to scale. And so these are the kinds of things that we're trying to do. What was your calling to this cause? I mean, I've, I've spent quite a lot of my time looking at sort of just different injustices in the world. I mean, like, you know, uh, lunchtime yesterday, I was with um, a group of um, people who'd been sitting on death row on average about 25 years each. Um, who finally were exonerated. Um, and, uh, and, you know, th- th- they opened my eyes to the fact that there are um, hundreds of people sitting on death row who are innocent. And, uh, and yet America continues to, um, uh, to... or some states in America continue to execute people. Um, and, uh, and, you know, in, in Europe, we've had 80 years where not one person's been executed. We feel like we're a civilised group of company, countries as a result. Um, and we'd like America to join the civilization of civilised countries. And, um, and, and, and um, yeah, so anyway, I see situations like that and I feel I've got, you know, I've got to do something about it. And if, I, if you're in a position to do something about it, you, you know, you, 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 I wouldn't sleep well at night unless I got out and did something about it. I mean, I've, I've run, I ran uh, a record company um, for many years and a lot of our artists had drug problems. Boy George, um, Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones and so on and so on and so on. And I've, you know, I've had you know, um, doctors at my home in Oxford trying to wean, wean, you know, wean people off. So, I, I mean, I've, I've been lucky enough to see it, you know, see it very clearly and also see, you know, how once somebody has been weaned off heroin, they can, you know, Boy George is now one of the, you know, uh, you know, doing incredible things. One of the, one, um, you know, um, he watched three of his friends die when, you know, when they were all taking heroin, but now he's, he, you know, he's now back and a normal member of society again. Um, and, and you can see the possibilities. So, um, so yeah, like, and, and enjoy trying to make a difference. Great. Well, I got into this because uh, when in 1986, when I was a student, my professor handed out the exams, and the next week he died of, of pneumocystis carinii pneumonia from HIV. A year later, my best friend died of AIDS, and my PhD supervisor died of AIDS the year after in 1991. And, um, and so I decided that it was a calling, and I was going to try to put myself out of a job. And I've been working with marginalized communities because social justice is at the heart of what we do. Patty, I know why you do this. You do it every day. <laughs> well, I did, I think because of I'm a miracle or God or I don't know a spiritual force or uh, you know the being lucky being coming from a family that was living across from the rail tracks I mean uh, I still seen like poor people coming to knocking into my mom's door and she will feed them uh, and she teach us how to 
I mean, how to teach, how to treat the poor without being judgmental or without being asking to go and take a shower. I mean, if we have a shower, we will give it to them. Or we, I mean, we bring in, if my mom, like, uh, burned my, I, I have an old car that was given, supposed to me when I was eight and I was saving it. And my mom gave it to a friend of hers that was, have TV. And before in those times, uh, people were isolated, put it like in sanitariums, but he was poor. So my mom helped him and stay in the, in the car. And he recovered there, but my mom didn't know what to do and she burned, she asked the firemen to come and burn the car. And I didn't have a car anymore. So, wow, anyway. well, I, I, I never knew that story about you, Patty. <laughs> but then uh, I, you know, my, my, I have one aunt that died uh, because of cancer and wanted to be a doctor that I, you know, learned how to treat cancer and to avoid suffering on the people. And then, I mean, I went to medical school and uh, came to, you know, run into UCSD invited by the, well, first, I worked in a homeless shelter for 10 years and Father Joe Villages. And I learned there how respect and compassion was more important than uh, expensive medicines. Yeah. I think that, and that was my call. That was my call. Then I went into uh, UCSD uh, with the mother, child, and adolescent, Mary Caffrey, Dr. Spector, uh, and others that were there. Uh, they're sitting back there. And I, they told me, do you want to work in the HIV uh, program? And I said, yes. I mean, I wanted to work there. And Mary used to call me, like, after she hired me, and she said, Patty, are you sure you want to work in the HIV, you know, mother-child? I said, yes, why not? Well, because sometimes people, I mean, we offer the job, and they say no, because they're afraid that touch the people. They're afraid to, uh, you know, to be close to them. And, I mean, I learned lessons for, for, for people that are, that are sick and that are destitute. And I think they need that we embrace them and make them feel that they're human beings. That's it. Jillian? I, I went to UCSD and I graduated from here in 1981 and I made up my own major in science writing. And I had glommed myself onto Jonas Salk, much to his chagrin, who was across the street. And I read a story in the Washington Post years later about him becoming involved with AIDS vaccine work. And I had covered AIDS a little bit, but because I knew a lot about him, I decided to do a story about that. That led to a book contract for the stupidest book idea ever, one year in the search for an AIDS vaccine. And now the question I ask myself is, why am I still doing this um, some 27 years later? HIV takes me right into the heart of communities. I get off airplanes in countries and I'm in villages. I'm working with clinicians. I'm working with people who are in need, who are struggling with the most difficult questions of life. Families are destroyed by this virus. Injustices are everywhere. And it's a compelling story that I can't, that has, I'm addicted to, that I can't get away from. And I would have thought that I would have left it long ago, but I'm still excited to be covering it. And I still learn a lot and I still feel like I'm useful. Well, you're the best, John. Well, there's hardly anyone else doing it. So, (laughs) you know, when you're when you're in a race by yourself, you win. You know, but that's that's my a virgin HIV expert. Yes. (laughs) 
My name is Happy Araneta. I'm a professor of epidemiology and starting to collaborate with, an, with um, investigators in the Philippines. We have an emerging HIV epidemic from drug users and call center workers. My, my comment is, and my question for Sir Richard Branson is, we have, as researchers, waited patiently and with frustration for opportunities to respond to requests for proposals. We're still waiting for Congress to approve a budget for uh, research funds for Zika. But we wait, and it's a long process. It takes nine months to a year. Consequently, we become more excited when we have, when there are opportunities from successful entrepreneurs like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation who um, encourage innovation and don't, uh, don't require a history of successful funding the way governments do. In the remaining months of President Obama's administration, if he were to invite you and other successful entrepreneurs to restructure a model that doesn't seem to be working effectively, expeditiously enough, what, would, what kind of guidance would you provide? And have you been invited? <laughs> and, and can you invite yourself? Um, it's, I, I hate to sort of name drop, but I'm, I've actually got dinner with Bill Gates tonight, so I will. I will. They, they, uh, Archbishop, um, Archbishop Tutu, uh, who I'm also lucky enough to know, uh, he says, um, people always accuse me of name dropping, he says. Um, only last week I was at Buckingham Palace and the Queen said to me, Arch, why are you always name dropping? <laughs> so, anyway, <laughs> somebody, somebody got it, thank you. Uh, they, they, um, they, um, no, I think, uh, I mean, it is, you know, Zika's potentially, uh, an, you know, as big a nightmare uh, as HIV has been. And, and it is unbelievable that... that, that that money to really get on top and tackle this problem has not has not been forthcoming, um, and um, and you know it may be because it takes nine months for a baby to be born, uh, but once you know baby once white, <laughs> I'm afraid white Americans start having babies with, with deformed heads, then finally the money will start coming. But at the, at the, you know but, um, uh, but at the, mo- the moment, sadly, it, you know sadly it's not it's not forthcoming and. You know, and people like Bill and Melinda and other foundations are, you know, thank God, stepping in to help a bit. But, um, but, but obviously more should be done. But actually, your point there ties right back to the drug use epidemic that we're experiencing here in the U.S. Because in the 1980s and 1990s, when it was urban, black, you know, poor people, the country didn't care. Now that we're seeing young, white, you know, daughters and sons of politicians. I mean, my God, Mitch McConnell came and, and overturned the, the, the federal ban on syringe exchange programs because he saw what was happening to his constituents in Kentucky. And so it's, it really it has changed the dynamic. A little, a little not enough. But, oh, absolutely. <laughs> I'm with you there. Um, so I, I, I know that we um, need to draw today to a close, and I want to thank a number of um, individuals and organizations. The Global Health Institute sponsored this event. International House um, kindly donated the space. A UCSD Advancement um, um, also was a sponsor for today. And um, there's one person who isn't here today, 
um, who really started the HIV research in Mexico and allowed me, um, who became his wife, to piggyback on top of it. And, um, and he, he said, I'll study the sex work and you study the drug use. And then we found out that it totally overlapped. So we, we, all we were missing was a little bit of rock and roll. My husband, Tom Patterson, um, has been in the hospital for the last six months. And um, he would be sitting right over here if he was here. But we, um, we saved his life with phage therapy. He's the first person in the United States um, to receive this therapy. And you're going to be reading about it in headlines in a couple of months. But um, needless to say, he deserves um, our thanks. And, um, and I'm... I'm And before I thank all of you, I'd like to, to thank Sir Richard for um, getting on a plane today, coming here, and, um, and then zooming off and having your dinner with Bill Gates. Um, because, I mean, this kind of a conversation needs to happen on a regular basis. And, um, and we've begun it today, but I, I invite all of you to really take this home into your own communities and to help give the people in Tijuana a voice. I mentioned earlier that the, the $3 or whatever it was that, that got you a ticket for today, all of those that proceeds, which is $556 at last count, goes to the Tijuana Wound Clinic that Patty does on her spare time. And that is helping the people in the canal. So just by being here today, you've become a part of the solution. I want to thank John Cohen. I want to thank Patty Gonzalez-Zuniga. I want to thank the Proyecto El Cuete team. You guys are our heroes. You are VIPs for a good reason, because you are on the front lines every day. And if you would stand, please. Stand. El Cuete. These are, they're in the book. And you're going to meet them in a few minutes if you have time to stay. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.